and welcome to the Singing for Health Network podcast. My name is Ruth Routledge and I am a singer, a choir leader, a Singing for Health practitioner researcher and I am delighted to welcome Frankie Armstrong as our podcast guest this morning. Frankie is a singer. She also runs voice workshops to support people to have vocal and expressive freedom with their voices, as well as being the founder and president of the Natural Voice Network. Good morning. Hello, Frankie. Good morning, Ruth. Lovely to be with you. Oh, it's lovely, lovely to have you. Thank you so much for joining us today. Would you just tell us a little bit more about yourself? I've been on this planet quite a long time. <laughs> I started singing in public and sang in skiffles, i.e. singing American blues and, and folk music. That shifted in the uh, very early 60s from singing largely American songs, but some international songs as well. So I was very much caught up in the second British folk song revival and was lucky to be mentored by the leading luminaries of the British folk song revival in the 60s. Mm. Then in the 70s, got very caught up in the women's movement and singing in forum within and researching and recording. I became a professional singer and the first people started saying, what is your fee? Would you come and sing at our folk club or the community center or women? And what is your fee? So I suppose that turned me into a professional singer. I was a social worker. Right, I see. Ah. No musical formal training. Right. Excellent. Which is never wasted at the psychology and emotional barriers that people have to singing. Um, at, you know, with a kind of social work and group work hat on. Yes. That all fed into the voice workshop. Having been touring in the state and going to workshops, on Balkan singing, and so I based my work on the style which was so encouraging and enabling. I I just ran one voice workshop for friends and friends and friends, and at the end they said, can we come back next week? <laughs> I feel so much more energised, and because of being having been in social media, quite a lot of the people with friends of mine who were in very demanding, challenging work, said, oh, I can get through the week now. Mm, yeah. And um, your social work practice or, or training, has that fed into your, your voice workshop leading as well? Absolutely. Yes. Uh, absolutely. It meant that when I started in London, I was a social worker. Actually, I was doing action research, going work in hospitals and mental health play centres, with girls' groups. I've worked in community education. Mm. Uh, so I needed my social work background mm. to help with all these different kinds of content. And then I found myself doing things like working for the National Theatre Studio mm. and for theatre companies. So all the work I'd done in the sick had been very theatre-based as well. 
Right. So I myself with the social rights theatre and singing background mm. kind of all coalesced with what was needed in helping thousands of people who've been told that they couldn't sing. The tone deck, go to the back of the class and mouths and minds. Yes. It's on my job as giving them self-belief, giving them exercise that will build the step that they can out on. Yes. So that was what, yeah, challenged me. How can I use all this awareness that I've built up in different worlds mm. that I've been living in? How can I do that to build people self-belief, belief in their own musicality, in yes. their own right word, mm. all those very central in the other worlds. Mm. Uh, mm. Wow, very, very human, it seems to me, yeah. you know, really, really working with the essence of what as people we, we need to flourish and to be healthy and well and to be kind of fully human. In a nutshell. Mm. Yeah. So Frankie, you're now going to lead us in one of your go-to exercises that you would use with a group. Would you like to just tell us a little bit about it or who you would use it for or what you think it does? Absolutely. <laughs> uh, I think this is probably what I discovered about 45 years ago and have made my trademark, if you like. So yep. what I'm going to do is a sequence with you, which as I say, puts my trademark into the picture or the sound because what i discovered was if i had a group who largely or a large percentage would have not felt confident about their voice would have been told that they were tone deaf or they didn't have a good singing voice or you know had some anxiety around their voices Mm. And hence, many had been told that they were tone deaf, i.e. they couldn't hear pitches. I discovered that if what I did was what I call gossip and heightened speak in a made-up language. So if I went something like, Ojaskamariko, that was very pitch. You could notate that. Ojaskamariko. Again, you could pitch. You could yes. notate those pitches and people could follow it. Nearly everybody in a group would follow those sounds because the, oh, I can't sing inhibition didn't have time to click in. Yes. Think of what singing is. Singing is sustaining pitches. I was doing was highly pitched, but not sustaining. What I would do is start with things like call and response, which I'm going to do in a minute, just with everyday sounds, and then yes. begin to expand those sounds. Yes. Uh, and then I'll stop and turn it into working in the fields, which is really my trademark. <laughs> yeah, but I remember seeing you do that actually at a Natural Voice conference a few years ago. Oh, right. Yes. They said, yes. can we have a classic Frankie warm up? <laughs> yeah. So we'll start with just call and response. How it will go is me, and then I'll repeat repeat it with Darian and if you want to join us in too that's fine so lovely yeah that's the sequence here lovely. we go we'll start with some gossipy sounds oh 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 oh
sliding back and yes. forth on the which yes. gets rid of the notion that you are either speaking or singing. Mm. You'll hear children going, la 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 ba 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 oh daddy can I have an ice cream? <laughs> ice cream, can I have an ice cream? Yes. The differentiation with little kids, mm. you know, just slide back and forth into each other, which of course is also what happens in a lot of traditional cultures. Yes. The style is much closer to what you might call heightened speech or chanting. So people have said to me, Frankie, I was convinced I couldn't sing and you snuck singing up on me. Mm. <laughs> Teased them into realizing they could sing. Yes. And I always say too, if you don't hit the same note as me, that's absolutely fine because I can promise you somewhere in the world that would be a perfectly acceptable harmony. Yes. Actually true. If you if you listen to enough harmonies from different parts of the world, yes. some are very crunchy to our Western ears. Yeah. So I don't mind if people don't necessarily get quite the notes right. I've banished the notion. Some of mine were definite harmonies. Yeah, some are definite. <laughs> which is fine. So you know, I think that's really important why the Natural Voice Network doesn't have audition choirs. Mm. When we went out as a natural voice network, based on my previous trainings, mm. my conviction was I never stopped anybody coming to a workshop. Yes. I'd sung a lot in the folk clubs. You know, there was a lot of singing and choruses and shanties and in there. But the folk clubs became rather blokey and smoky and jokey. Right. And, and I felt there should be somewhere else that anybody who wanted to sing without judgment, regardless of their background, mm. there should be somewhere that that could happen. And I still believe that to be the core of what we in the network should be about. Yes. Inclusion, you know, the buzzword of the moment, but actually it means welcoming everyone. And 
giving everyone, like you're saying, the opportunity to turn up and sing regardless of your experience, your voice, your state of health. Yeah, absolutely. And I notice as well when you were doing it, how in your body you are, your gesturing just looks very natural, completely in your body as well. For me, that's absolutely central. My way into the voice is the, the body and the imagination. Mm. I use a imaginings both contexts or animals all kinds of different imaginative things again to take his mind off am i singing correctly am i using the right note all those things actually get in the way yes. of producing that free released energizing way of producing sound yes do you think there's um, a cultural element to those inhibitions, perhaps a, a British thing or that, you know, that you get in some cultures, but that you really don't in others? There is absolutely a cultural imposition. In the 18th century, the English were known to the continent as the singing English. Mm. What was created quite artificially through the coming of the Industrial Revolution and the making of the middle class. Right. What came about was the idea that people should sing in a particular way. Right. And that was educators and those who wanted to climb up the social ladder mm. wanted people who reflected gentility. Right. And if you read Thomas Hardy's Under the Greenwood Tree, that's a wonderful description of how, in this case, the church, the gentility of the clergy, got rid of of the folk elements, the West Gallery Choir, the bands oh, right. who would have played in the pub and right. played in the streets for Morris dancing. They yes. were therefore young boys went into the church and uh, an organ or a spinet or something that mm. played nicely in the church. And in the schools, I'm quite sure the kids from, you know, working parents, the labourers, the factory workers, whatever, would sing, yeah, 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 yeah. my mother's head. And that wasn't considered to be genteel singing. Mm. So again, the notion of who could sing and who couldn't, who mm. should who shouldn't. Yes. And what sounds are and are not acceptable, you know, what ways of using the voice or... So there would still be people singing in the music halls and in the pubs, you know, in that much more what was called vulgar, mm. in that much freer style. Yes. Uh, but that wasn't acceptable, you know, within the education system and hence came about the notion that some people could sing and some couldn't. And it hasn't existed probably for about 150,000 years right. that have been singing. Yes, uh, which still exists to this day, really, really does. You know, I meet someone and, you know, what do you do? Oh, I'm a musician, I lead choirs. And almost invariably the response is, oh, I can't sing. You know, yeah. it's, it's just astounding. I would call that a cultural crime mm. that was perpetrated largely in the 1800s, particularly in the latter half of the 1800s. It still exists. And that's a tragedy mm. because singing for all these, well, at least 100,000 years, we can be pretty sure of. Why did we do that? It gave us a sense of energy, a life, 
and identification and a sense of community with those we sang with. Yes. In the fields or in the church or in the pub or in the home. Mm. This was our way of expression and sharing with our communities mm. culture. And so that got sat on by the education and the, the church. And so in terms of specifically singing for health, a lot around the Singing for Health network is really about bridging the gaps between research and practice and the medical establishment and participants just really breaking down those barriers. Any thoughts on that? I think that desire to articulate what what helps mm, really yeah. is what has preoccupied me in relation to the use of language in relation to my teaching when I'm teaching and training. So I, I've not done any formal research into singing but I think mm. my four, seven years have been precisely that, yes. honing what seems to help in terms of freeing up. Because these days in a lot of the CPD and training that I've been doing, mm. there's a lot of who come, unlike me, with a formal musical training. Yes. So what I'm actually doing is helping them unlearn mm. of the more rigid ways of thinking about music as correct, incorrect, Yes. Um, harmonies is correct, incorrect. Yes. Vocalities is correct, incorrect. Because that's so trained into people yes. who start on formal musical training when they're young. Absolutely. I mean, that's my background. Absolutely. Right. So I'm on helping them undo some of that. Yeah. And recognize that sounds that they may have been taught to think of as ugly or incorrect or mm. wrong are not. But as I say, somewhere else in the world, if you go to the island of Kirk in the Dalmatian islands of Croatia, they sing in parallel seconds. Wow. <laughs> the uncomfortable for us to listen to. Mm, wow, that's fascinating. That's how they sing. Wow. So once you begin to, to listen to what's happening in other parts of the world, mm. you realise that we only have certain aesthetics. Yes. Yes. That live in both the commercial world and the more elite formal musical world. Mm. And I think it's very liberating to help break those down for people. Yes. So if you like, you know, that has been a research project for me. Mm. What helps people to open up their ears to hearing differently. And then presumably to be able to have a wider range of expression vocally, either with or without language. Yeah, yeah. absolutely. And, and the fact that I teach songs in languages other than English, because this first workshop I ever ran that I told you about, July 75, yes. I taught songs from Eastern Europe, the vocal style. That kind of singing out in the fields, right up from the soles of the feet. Uh, you know, out into in across space, and people did it really well. Mm. The next week, because they said, "Can we come back next week?" Frankie, mm. I feel so energized. So I thought, "Oh, I'll teach an English out in the street open air song, a soul cake, a soul cake, 
please good missus a soul cake but what happened particularly to a lot of the women's voices was they went a soul cake a soul cake please good missus a soul cake back into kind of little girl voices mm, or something mm. Polite, polite English voices. Polite English voices. Mm. So I had to break it down and do hey ho, hey ho, oh hey ho, hey. Just use the vowels mm. and get the same vocal quality. Right. <laughs> yeah. 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 And then gradually build in the language. And interestingly, when I went to Sweden, which I went to quite a lot in the late seventies, early eighties, songs, Italian songs. Songs, Balkan songs, songs from different parts of the world, and they all sang powerfully and beautifully. And then somebody said, Oh, I'm one of the people said, Oh, can I teach a Swedish song? Yes. And it was lovely, but it was all a lot nicer, sweeter, and politer. Mm. So, you know, I think that process, because sometimes, you know, those of us in the network who do teach non English songs mm. get why are you singing these other yes. songs? Yes, yes, absolutely. Because the vocal quality that you require and partly formulated because of the language, mm. because it's in your mouth differently. Yes. The romance is placed differently. Mm. So it opens up possibilities. Yes. Adjusting the language that you sang in as a child when often you were being inhibited or told not to sing so loud mm. or to sing nicely. Mm. All those inhibition producing things that happened to school kids would be freed up or there was the the possibility of freeing them up by singing songs in other languages. And actually, particularly if you're working in an oral way and you are traveling and encountering different cultures, different languages, for me, it's a very, a very human thing to pick up the songs and to ask about the songs and to try and learn the songs and then to bring that kind of cultural richness to other people that I might see or I'm working with. That's my personal view. I do know that there are lots of concerns around cultural appropriation. I don't know what your view is. I think if, well, I started, as I say, with traditional songs mm. in the 1960s and learning and researching and doing projects and recordings and uh, writing about British folk music mm. and its role in history, particularly for women, mm. uh, how women were hidden from history, but songs actually were a way in to mm. illuminating and empathizing with and understanding something about our, our maternal ancestors, not that many generations ago, really, you know, mm. to uh, research into folk songs and appreciate those and listen to the great singers of our tradition, because, you know, at least from Percy Granger in 1908, we started to have recordings mm. of singers so we knew something about the stylistic elements the ornamentations the phrasing the storytelling mm. so it was something that could be studied and appreciated and witnessed to so if you did that for your own culture why couldn't you do that for somebody else's by as you say listening asking finding mm. out those cultures what those songs meant so yes. i think it's 
matters of respect and witnessing to those cultures in yes. the same way you do for your own yes i mean that's because that was the way i came into it yes yeah so i think it can be genuinely cultural appreciation mm. as long not exploitative. Yes, yeah, I'd agree. And regarding singing for health, since about 2000, there's been a lot of research coming out demonstrating the health benefits of singing. There's been a lot around singing for lung health, singing for Parkinson's, singing for dementia. Do you see yourself as a singing for health practitioner? In a non-specialized generic. <laughs> because I think that's what, you know, when you think of what our ancestors have had to survive in terms of predation, you know, what's happened to the climate over the, well, million years that we've been on this planet. Mm. It's you know, the first recognizably human people started two million years ago, right? And I think it really is something that created the energy and the strength and the sense of family and clan and community solidarity. Sharing songs, be they for work, for dance, for devotion. Well, ritual is really what under, underlies both song, art and theatre. So I think that's deep, deep in our DNA. Yes. How can a few hundred years of, quote, civilization have bred it out of us? Yes. We were still all singing in the fields together mm. just a few generations back or in the factories. Mm. Women in the weaving sheds uh, were singing together. No, absolutely. And I, I went to a lecture by Granville Hancocks on this subject and very much looking at the evolutionary aspect of singing. And he was saying that singing, laughter and dance predate language evolutionarily, which Absolutely. does suggest that it's that it is it's sort of hardwired into our into our biological makeup. It's not an optional extra, you know, as a sort of cherry on the cake of humanity or civilization. Really, it, it's a fundamental part of our being and our being in relation to other people in communities. I just think that it is part of being fully human. Yes. And having that opportunity to express ourselves in a heightened form. Um, so is there something you would like to see happening? Well, people must know this. It seems so... I'm not sure. Yeah, I think when you're doing it, it is. You're experiencing it yourself. When you're working with other people, you're also witnessing and facilitating other people's quite deep transformations. But I do think that culturally, a lot of people have just stopped singing. And it's not a norm in the way that historically it would have been. I actually think that it is perceived as a sort of optional extra and a luxury thing or a nice thing rather than a fundamental human need to express and, and be heard as well and responded to by other people. Yeah, I mean, I totally agree with you. But I also think that somewhere in the psyche of, of the way the hierarchies in our culture and particularly the fact that over the course of my lifetime, you know, we have seen richer and richer people having accruing more and more power to themselves. I'm talking mm. both the corporations, the finance services, 
Mm. and the political class. Mm. I don't want to come up with any daft conspiracy, but, <laughs> but I think somewhere general suppression of the more kind of outflowing human energies to embrace life in all its strangeness and wonder and creation of the planet, just all the things that actually are good for us are being systematically suppressed. Mm. I do think you're right, actually. I, I think you're completely right. You look at any dictator and almost one of the first things they do is actually start to restrict people's access to music and their expression, their musical expression. You look at during COVID, the way singing was really, really kind of demonized. Children in primary schools were not allowed to sing and yet they were pretty much licking each other's faces and wiping their snot <laughs> on each other's sleeves. You sort of think, come on, where's the balance here. To me, actually, it did seem as though there was some kind of really trying to control the people and stop them uniting, stop them expressing themselves, stop them even quite knowing what they need in order to express it as well. That for me is a, a kind of instinctive sense rather than a, here's the evidence. And, you know, a lot of colonised places, even Scotland and Ireland, their own songs, music and language were banished. Mm. So, you know, the Gaelic and the Gaelic mm. songs were banished. So even within our own island colonization, yes. let alone other places, and slaves, I mean, the church yes. luckily became the only place that they were allowed to sing collectively. So there really is a lot of indication, as you say, that those in power will, the more power they accrue, the more they suppress the natural expressive nature, because that could potentially be rebellious. Yes, absolutely. And look what happened in Chile. There was the new song movement and people like Victor Jara and a great deal of music yeah, was radical and progressive mm. and slaughtered in, mm. in the foot stadium. So right. even in my lifetime, the same with the you know, anti-apartheid, the first demonstration, mm. I found myself on by accident. I just happened to walk into Trafalgar Square when I was 19 in 1960, was the Sharpville Massacre demonstration with some fantastic South African singing, of course, mm. in Trafalgar. You know, the anti-apartheid movement, singing was absolutely crucial mm. to it to them just keeping going in the face of a very brutal regime mm. so i can't unthread those things and i think you know in some ways we've got a worse situation from the powers that be and a better situation from the grassroots i.e what you're doing and what the network's doing and, and what sydney dahan are doing and mm. for prescribing for health yes although that, yeah. that means to have some of its preconceptions broken down a bit you know that all community singing is good for health it doesn't yes. have to be used on a specific condition yes yeah it's valuable for everybody yes absolutely in an inclusive way and actually really brings people together in all their humanness so it seems to me as though perhaps the culmination of what you were talking about there you know singing as a as an act of collective resistance and rebellion and steadfastness as well for a cause and keeping going in the face of real adversity. It sounds to me like you're advocating a, a singing rebellion. 
<laughs> or is that just my hope? That sounds like a good idea. <laughs> Excellent. We'll be we'll be at the front. <laughs> Absolutely. And I mean, just look at the current bill that's going through Parliament. It's about keeping noise down. Yes, in right? demonstrations, is this? It's yeah. exactly what we're talking about. It yes. is exactly saying stop making a noise, otherwise you can actually be arrested and yes. even imprisoned. That's yeah. happening at this very minute. Mm. Right. Let's get that singing rebellion going, Frankie. We had better stop there, but um, thank you so, so much. Really, really fascinating to talk to you and hearing about your journey from social work on one side and singer on the other and actually bringing it together. It sounds like somewhat inadvertently in your work that's become your main thing. Yeah, yeah, it, it is. It's that process of freeing. You use the word transformational and mm. that's what I've seen happen for many people. That something in the process of finding their voice really does change. Yeah. When that's in a movement for change, for social change, and social justice mm. that could have real power yes absolutely thank you so much frankie and i will you. see you soon yes i hope so ah, da, 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 da,